What sort of world do you want your children, your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren to grow up in? Or if you don't have children, what are your hopes for the future in general? How do you hope the world will be in 50 years or 100 years' time? Are you an optimist who foresees steady progress towards peace and prosperity through the advancement of technology? Or are you a bit more pessimistic? Do you foresee history repeating itself as the world plunges into periods of decline and disaster, unrest and struggle? There are many possibilities for what the future might look like. There are many ways to apply the lessons of history to our expectations of the future. But one of my tasks as the principal Bible teacher in this church is to help us all more and more to see history from a different point of view. My task is to help us all see the past, the present and the future from the perspective of our promise-making and promise-keeping God. And this matters because how you live, how I live, is shaped by the story that we think we're living in. Unless you know the story of history from the perspective of the one who's in control of history, how can you live your life in line with where history is going? And how can we prepare the next generation for the future unless we teach them where this world is really going? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to step back and take a, a big picture view of history from God's perspective. Instead of looking at sort of one individual piece of the puzzle, we're going to zoom out and take a look at the, the front of the box. We're going to see the whole thing in broad brushstrokes, the big picture. And to help us see it, we're looking at Zechariah's song. Last week we looked at Mary's song that she sang following the announcement that she would be the mother of God's son, Jesus. Zechariah sang his song when he became the father of of the prophet who would prepare the way for Jesus, John the Baptist. And his song is in two parts. First, praise, and then prophecy. First, he praises the promise-making God. Then he prophesies about the promise-keeping God. Understanding God's promise-making and his promise-keeping is central to understanding the big story we are living in. So let's dive in. And we're going to begin with section one of Zechariah's song where he praises the promise-making God. It's Luke chapter, two, uh, chapter one, verses 67 to 75 on page 1027 of the Bibles. And what we'll see is that the story of the world is shaped by a promise, God's promise to Abraham. Now, if you don't know the, uh, the backstory, we didn't read all of it, um, imagine the scene. Zechariah is a gentleman on the older side of things. Uh, he's well on in years. 
And his wife Elizabeth has never been able to have children. But then God chose them to become the parents of a special child. Elizabeth became pregnant in her old age and gave birth to a boy called John. And they were obviously filled with joy. And they know this miraculous birth signifies big things. Because they know it's a a historic moment. Because an angel told Zechariah that John would be like the prophet Elijah. And if you know the Old Testament like Zechariah did, uh, you'll know that the return of Elijah was the sign that God himself was coming to save his people. And so Zechariah lifts his voice in praise of the promise-making uh, of the promise, uh, making God. Verse 68, he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. The rescue, it's underway. Then verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn is a symbol of strength. He's saying that a powerful descendant of King David has been raised up and he's thinking of Mary's boy, Jesus. God has raised up Jesus to be the powerful saviour of God's people. And why has God raised up a powerful saviour? Well, take a look down with me at verse 72. Zechariah says, To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, which we read, 4,000 years ago it tells us God chose a man called Abraham or at the time, Abram, to receive a promise. God promised to create out of Abraham's descendants a chosen nation. God promised that he would be their God and that through them he would bless the whole fallen world. And that promise was reiterated many times and God swore on oath and made a covenant with Abraham to make clear that this was his definite and certain plan. And the rest of history is the story of how God is bringing that promise to completion. Where history is going is determined ultimately by what God promised to do. And in relation to God's people Israel, here's what Zechariah was expecting on the basis of that ancient promise. Have a look with me at verse 74. Zechariah is expecting God, he says, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The ultimate goal of the promise is for God's people to serve him. The ultimate aim of being saved by God is to become free to live in service of God. Now, to some people, the definition of freedom is being free to do what you want. But that's not freedom. That's slavery. Because we are so naturally corrupted by sin that what we want is ultimately not good, but evil. 
The world is full of people doing what they want. But it's not paradise. True freedom, true salvation involves even freedom from ourselves. Freedom from our sin. Only then are we free to turn away from self-centeredness and selfishness and instead turn towards God. That is freedom. The freedom to see and savour God in all his glory and to serve him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength without the interruption of sinful desires and without the interruption of political oppression. God's salvation is not just spiritual, it's also political. Zechariah knew that for God to keep his promises, his people didn't just need saving from themselves, they needed saving from their enemies. In the past, God had to rescue his people from Egypt so they could be free to worship him without the oppression of the Pharaoh. That was the Exodus. In Zechariah's day, they were under occupation by the fourth empire in a row. They were first conquered by Babylon as a consequence of their sins, and then they were ruled over by the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. What God's people needed was spiritual and political liberation. Because the goal of the promise was for God's people to be free to serve him uninterrupted. And that is where history is going. The promise made is ultimately a promise uh, by God to give his people the freedom to serve him, freedom to be holy and righteous, no sin, no selfishness, and to do it forever. That's his promise. That's the future. And if you know how good God is, you know how good that will be. And Zechariah rejoices because the time has now come when the promise God made is about to be the promise God kept. We've seen Zechariah praise the promise-making God. Now let's hear him prophesy about the promise-keeping God. This is verses 76 to 79 of Luke chapter 1. And what we're going to see is that God's promise to liberate his people will be fulfilled through his son, Jesus. That's why Jesus came. And I chose the picture up there on the screens because I imagine Zechariah might have been holding his baby John as he said these words. Have a look at verse 76. He says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. When you were little, what did you want to do when you grew up? John's just a baby, but his dad already knows what he's going to be. He's going to be a prophet of God. He's going to be like an ambassador or herald who goes ahead of the king along the road to get the people ready for when the king comes to town. Except John will be preparing the way, not for a merely human king, but for the Lord, the Most High. God himself is about to come and rescue his people. 
And how will he rescue his people? Have a look with me at verse 77. Zechariah says God will bring his people's salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Spiritual and political liberation is tied to, it depends on, the forgiveness of our sins. Our sin is it's no small thing. It's, an, it's offensive to God, and if nothing is done about it, it makes it impossible for God to live among us and be our God. Your sin, my sin, isn't something that gets dealt with by just being good or just going to church. It can only be dealt with by receiving God's forgiveness. He promised to Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than anyone could count. And God himself would be their God. But time and again, their sin drove God away from them and brought them under the control of powerful enemies. For God to keep his promise, he will have to make it possible to forgive their sins. And Zechariah says he will. John's task was to proclaim that salvation is coming because God will forgive us. And why? We've already said it's because of his promise, but why would God keep a promise to a people who keep sinning and rebelling? Well, verse 78 tells us, because of the tender mercy of our God. God is a God whose wrath and anger at sin burns hot. And that's good. God's wrath is the only power that can ultimately rid creation of everything evil. But he's also a God of tender mercy. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He loves his sinful people and longs for them to return to him. He is compassionate towards messed up, mixed up, sinful people, and he wants to save them. And if you're not saved yet, there is mercy for you as well. Zechariah knows that the birth of John is the sign that forgiveness of sins is coming and that salvation is on the way. When will it come? Verse 78, or halfway through that verse, 78. He says, when the rising sun comes from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death in order to guide our feet into the path of peace. Forgiveness, salvation, freedom is coming. It's coming when the rising sun comes down from heaven to shine into our darkness. And that rising sun that came down from heaven to shine in our dark world is Jesus. Just like when you wake up at night and turn a lamp on and it obliterates the darkness and enables you to see the way to walk. In the same way, when Jesus came from heaven, he came to be a light that would obliterate our darkness. The darkness in our hearts, our spiritual darkness, and the darkness of the oppression of his people, political darkness. And to show us the way to go, he came to help us see the path of peace and to walk on it. God made a promise to Abraham and he kept it 
by sending Jesus. That's what was going on when Jesus was crucified. It looked like a victory for the enemies of God's people. But when he went up to the cross, Jesus was in fact carrying our sins. When he died, he died for us. He died the death we deserved. He died it in our place. On the cross, he bore, instead of you and me, the judgment that we are due for our sins. So that with justice having been served and the sentence fully paid, we could be raised from out of darkness. Our sins could be forgiven so that we could finally be set free. At the cross, sin and Satan were defeated. And when Jesus rose from the dead, we were vindicated with him. And those who crucified him, the enemies of God's people, were condemned. Even though we sinned and sinned and sinned, at the cross, our merciful God was keeping his promise to all his people. He is the promise-making and promise-keeping God. But there's still more to come. When the sun dawned that first Christmas day, the work of final salvation began. But it will not be complete until Jesus returns. Spiritually, we still battle daily against the sinful natures we were born with. And politically, God's people still struggle under all kinds of oppression all around the world. Total spiritual and political freedom is something we're still looking forward to. But we know it will come because God promised. And he's already kept that promise at the cost of the life of his own beloved son. So what he started, we can be sure he will finish. There are many different ideas out there about where history is heading and how the world will end, but we know the answer. We know that God is keeping the promise he made, that God is growing for himself a nation of forgiven sinners rescued by Jesus, and that in the end he will set us free from all spiritual and political oppression, free to worship him in holiness and righteousness forever and ever. If you want to be on the right side of history, you need to be on the side of Jesus. And while we wait for his return, let's be people who, who, like John the Baptist, prepared the way by making known to our friends and neighbours God's tender mercy, his promise of salvation, and the forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus for us on the cross. And let's also be people like Zechariah, who say, and who teach our children to say, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. And now let's pray. Lord God, we do indeed praise and glorify your name because you are merciful and compassionate. Long ago you made a promise 
and you kept it. You were faithful. Thank you that through Jesus we are set free and that when he returns we will worship you in holiness and righteousness for all our days. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.